0: Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for another morning, afternoon, night, whatever time anyone is listening to this. And thank you for the opportunity to study your word. Thank you for all we've learned in the book of 1 Peter from the very first chapter till now. Thank you for these lessons that teach us how to live even in the world we find ourselves today. I pray that as we Bring this book to a close. I pray there is clarity. I pray there is wisdom. I pray that the truth of your word shines bright in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, hi, everyone, once again. Hi, Bimi. Um, I think we need to do something about the fact that guys don't attend Bible studies. (laughs) um, Hi, everyone. Yes, I, I mean, it's always been the pattern not even surprised anymore. Miracle and Bimi can testify to that. <laughs> but um, where are we? First Peter 4. So, so far we've gone through the entire um, book, chapter by chapter. And I think the context is pretty clear. It's a very short letter, even though there's a lot packed into all that Peter wants to say. But the general idea is Peter is writing to believers scattered around most of Asia, who at this point in time, many of them are undergoing persecution. And if you've been following all we've been studying, especially since Hebrews, of course, you'd already start to get the idea that the early church didn't exactly have it easy. And for many of these people, there was pressure from the Gentile counterparts, there was pressure from the Jewish people, pressure from the Roman government, ultimately leading to actual full-scale um murder or actual killing and all of that but the point there is that it comes as no surprise that for the early apostles writing these letters our response in the face of suffering and persecution was a big part of all they had to say and i've said this severally now that even though we may not directly relate that for some of us or most of us here and people listening online Um, We may not directly relate to the fact that our lives are probably not being threatened. Thank God. Um, Or we're not facing persecution to the same extent that many of the people in this audience were facing. It doesn't take away the fact that as believers, there is a certain mindset we should build in the face of suffering and persecution, in the face of life, right? Because not everything will will, in quote, be rosy and they walk through the park through the and all of that. Jesus said it, that in this life you will face tribulations, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And a huge part of what First Peter does is to help fortify that mindset that as a believer today, in a world where there is suffering and persecution, what is my mindset? In light of the hope of salvation I have, how do I conduct myself such that I am as effective in the preaching of the gospel and getting people saved and in my conduct amongst those who aren't saved? That's pretty much the summary of the entire book of First Peter. And we started um, chapter 1, Peter starting to talk about the hope, all right? Where better place to start? And with the good news, all that Jesus has done, all that is in store. The same way Paul would start Ephesians 1 to 3. Oh, you were saved together. You were sanctified together. You were raised together. You are seated together. All those cool stuff. And then he says, therefore, do all this. Peter does something similar. He talks about the, the, the inheritance, incorruptible undefiled. He talks about the hope, whom have not seen? We love and we rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. He talks about the, the hope of salvation that we've received, that even angels um, look into the things and are like, wow, see how God loves these people. See what God has done for mankind in the man Jesus, right? He talks about all of that and then he starts verse 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, rest on the hope that is to come. He talks about our conduct in holiness. He starts the next chapter, chapter 2, still the same train of thought about practical conduct, right? How to live. And then he reminds them that you are God's people. Remember 1 Peter 2, 9, where a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and all of that. And then he still goes on through that same line of thought that if you have been called out from the world, To stand for God in the face of an unbelieving world what does that look like what does it mean practically to be a holy nation a royal priesthood a peculiar people what does that look like and he starts in chapter 2 verse 13 first one is submission to authority again from a cultural contextual point of view this was very important That even though, yes, you submit to Jesus as king of the world, even though, yes, you submit to the the lordship of Christ and the authority of the kingdom of heaven, it doesn't make you a rebellious people today. And we saw similarities with that in Jesus' earthly ministry. That even though, yes, he is the king of the world and all that, look at what he said before Pilate. He says, my kingdom is not of this world, right? If not, people would have been fighting now that I was arrested jesus being who he was did not did not stand against did not um reject human authority and that's the same idea that as believers don't go set up your own oh we don't care what the government thinks we don't care what these people no he says the first way to show that you are god's people in an unbelieving world is through submission to authority and that's amazing Right? It's still the same heart we see in Jesus. How strength was seen in submission and sacrifice. How the power of God was seen in the weakness of his death. And Paul goes on and on on that in Corinthians. And we're going to spend time when we get there. And he says the wisdom of God is wiser than the foolishness of this world. And God uses the things that the world considers small or insignificant or weak to show his grace, his glory, and his power. So Where nations will try to show their strength by boasting about how many nuclear weapons they, they might have, God shows his strength by dying, by submitting to humanity and taking on weakness. That's amazing. And so it's the same attitude as believers. He says submit to authority, right? Whether it's your masters, whether it's the government, he goes on, right? Whether it's wives to husbands, submission. Is, is it's not a sign of weakness as we oftentimes when we hear the word submissive we oftentimes um get the idea of oh it's it's am i weak why why should i why should i um why should i humble myself why should i take um the lesser end but that's that's the heart of god that's the heart of god And I've explained all of this and what it's not saying and what it's saying, where it clashes with the will of God. I've talked about that several weeks before. So I recommend you find that recording and listen to it. And then he moves on. After submission, the next thing is conduct in the face of suffering. In chapter 3, he talked about it, that all of you be of one mind, be of one heart. He says that even though... People might revile you for doing the right thing. He says that you are blessed. And then he goes on in chapter 15, very popular verse. We talked about that two weeks ago, I think, or last week. And he talks about set apart the Lord and always be ready to give an apologia for the reason for the hope that is in you. Right? So he talks about the idea that even if you suffer for the name of Christ, wait with honor with honor that is how you shine in the midst of an ungodly world that is how you show that you are indeed a holy nation a peculiar people in conduct in response to authority in 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 your attitude even when the world reviles you we looked at chapter four right last week where he then talks about the end to come and so what is the what is the response to a world that is going to be destroyed <laughs> it says be serious and be watchful in your prayers he talks about loving one another fervently and then finally he talks about serving one another with the graces that god has given you i talked about each of these things at length um over the past couple sorry last week actually so make sure you you get that and um yeah by the way, Miriam, I apologize. Um, I think between the last time you were here and now, the link changed. We're using my school link, but apparently they've kicked me out. I'm no longer one of them, so <laughs> I had to switch. But anyways, this is the link we use moving on. So now we start um First Peter 4 verse 12. I just wanted to run through all of that so that the idea or the general context of all Peter has been saying is very clear. He's talking about... What does it mean to be God's people in the world y'all or they are living in at that point? Right, so chapter, verse 12, get your Bibles. I'm reading from the NKJV, your notes, and let's get right into the word. I hope I'm recording. Yes, I am recording. <laughs> I'll just start crying. It says, Beloved, do not think it's strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though something strange was happening to you. And it's it's amazing how how much his emphasis is on our attitude to suffering, and it's also equally amazing how underemphasized that seems to be today, right? It's so he says don't don't, don't be surprised, like don't let it shock you. If the people I was reading, um, I'm studying the book of Matthew personally right now. I was reading Matthew yesterday, and Jesus again he said it that. If they, if they called me Beelzebub, what would they call He says, no teacher is greater than his master. He says, it is enough. I, I, I almost highlighted it in my Bible. It is enough that a servant should be just like his master. That if they hate me, they will hate you too. If they insult me, they insult you too. And all of that. And the message was very clear that to a world that hates God, don't be surprised at the way they would react to followers of God. And that's what Peter is also saying. It says, however, rejoice. It says, don't be surprised. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. And even though many of us, again, don't identify with like physical persecution or stuff like that, I'm sure on some level, We've identified with that struggle of standing for Christ, let's say amongst your friends or amongst colleagues or maybe on social media. And there's sometimes that resistance because you know that there will always be pushback. If you choose to be as vocal as we should about our faith, there will be pushback. But Peter says, Don't be surprised. Rather, what should you do? It says, Rejoice rejoice that you are able to identify so apart from the fact that um in times of of persecution and suffering like we've seen in james and, and hebrews we are made better we also identify with christ in acts 541 you read how peter and john were flocked and it says they left there rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for christ and i'm like what I can, you could just picture Peter and after they like, ah, they flogged us here and say, ah, they flogged me more than you. And they're laughing about it. Not exactly in a sadistic, I want to die kind of way. But in that, in that revelation that we identify with Christ when we suffer for him. In fact, hardly anything, any physical experience on earth, identifies you as close to Christ, as suffering for him. The idea of, yes, I can't pay him back for anything he's done, so the least I can do is live for him, even if it costs me my life. It's amazing to think about. It's easy to talk about. It's not the easiest to live out, but it should be every believer's goal to identify with Christ, whether it's in good times and especially in the hard times, whether the world turns our back And says, we hate your. It says, rejoice that in that moment, in that moment, his glory is revealed. He that you partake of his sufferings, and that when his glory is revealed, you would also be glad with exceeding joy. In verse 14, he goes on in the same same train of thought. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. (laughs) Right. Um I'm trying to remember, I think these were things that sometimes, usually when we're going to school as kids and our parents would start to talk to us along the same lines, that even if they don't like you, even if they insult you, I remember when I first entered boarding house (laughs) and the grace of God was still upon my life (laughs) until I... I don't know what i did with it but <laughs> i remember then like sometimes we had like every month or so on friday nights like i can't remember what we call it but people are dancing and all of that and the very first the very first so it's kind of like a party but because we're all young secondary school children is in the dining hall and they're playing music and all sorts of crazy things are happening right that's mm-hmm. even at my age i should not be in that kind of companion and we're how old 10 11 <laughs> but um, and the very first one i sat down at the corner of the door and i was reading my bible i don't know what point i was trying to prove i don't know what i was trying to do because i think there are better ways and wiser ways to represent christ than going to a party sitting down at the entrance and reading your bible and my friends never let that thing slide, even when I joined them in doing nonsense. <laughs> like, ah, remember that time when you were reading Bible during... I can't remember the name. but <laughs> Oh, my goodness. But it is well. We thank the Lord. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. It says, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Right? It says, on their part, is blasphemed. But on your part... He is glorified and it's the same attitude that yes the world might feel hey we don't want you we don't like this and all that but on your part your identification with christ your willingness to stand even in the face of persecution even if up to the point of death it says it glorifies god it glorifies god we read out the stories of the martyrs of old you see stephen and even while he's being stoned he he's, he's looks up to heaven and he's able to pray for the people that are stoning him. Stoning is not painful, is not is not easy. Old. You can say, ah, they're about to shoot me to the head. Ah God forgive. As that as he's praying, this one stone just hit his head. And, like, ah, and he'll still be praying for them. Think about that heart. See Jesus start um while he was on the cross, the most excruciating. Method of of killing a person at that point in time, he's able to still say, "Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing." And that's the that's that's all that Peter is reflecting on. That no other moment in our earthly experience unites us with with what it means to be a Christian as suffering for him, as suffering for him. And it's no surprise. For instance, you—you, you, I'm sure many of us have seen um, videos or probably or read articles, and you see, you look at the life of Christians in persecuted nations, and there's this strength or authenticity to their faith that is so admirable. It's like we're we're like, see. I If we can have some of what they have. Of course, not the many of us, I'm not saying we should wish persecution. I've talked about that we're not suicidal. That we start walking, say, ah, I want to suffer for Christ. Where are they going to? Where's the next place they will punch me because I'm a Christian? No. But there is something that identifying with Jesus in suffering does to your faith that probably nothing else will do. And that is the mindset that James and the writer of Hebrews and Peter. Is trying, it's, it's a form of encouragement. It's a form of strength that you know that in this point in time, I identify with Christ. I identify with Christ. I remember the video I watched of a guy that went to a church in China. I'm sure many of us have probably seen that video. And while he was preaching, he says that he would teach for hours. They were not tired. They were not saying, ah, we have to go. Ah, two hours already? What is the problem? I have a game to watch tonight. They sat down on the floor. It says he would read the Bible verses and some of them didn't need to flip open their Bible. They had memorized several chapters, several chapters. It says, when did you find the time? Oh, in prison, in prison. And I think he left saying um, that, no, we, um, you shouldn't pray to be like us. We're the ones that should pray to be like you or something like that. These are believers that if they have found out that they are meeting jail straight away, And there is a certain glory, a certain joy, a certain sincerity of faith that these people share that is hardly found in many chiller parts of the world today. Of course, we don't need to suffer to to experience authentic Christian faith. I'm just saying this to challenge us, to challenge us. Um, Where am I? (laughs) Verse 15. It says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters so if you are indeed going to suffer for the name of Christ let it be it's because of your identification with Christ don't be they say oh they sacked me I was reading my Bible in the office and they sacked me oh the glory of God rests on me you are not okay (laughs) you are not okay you are incompetent you are paid to do something from a certain point in time Tammy's laughing because she's in HR she knows she will be the person to write that sack letter fellow believer to fellow believer, <laughs> but don't, don't say, if, when you did something wrong, as ah, it's, it's persecution. It's, no, it's not persecution. You're just a terrible employee, right? It says, if any one of you suffer, let it not be because you did something wrong. It says, but in verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. still the same challenge to glorify God in the face of suffering. It says, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who don't obey the gospel of God? I'll read verse 18 and then I'll explain what both verses mean. Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? A lot of people have used this verse. I don't even know what they've used it to mean, but we hear it a lot. Our Judgment will begin at the house of God. What does that mean? I think from the context is pretty clear. What does Peter refer to as the judgment that has begun in the house of God? The persecutions they were going through. It's very clear, right? That if in this world, the believer faces persecution... To to maintain the integrity of his faith even in the world beyond. How much more for the person that rejects God in this life? What then is waiting for them? That's 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 all that he's saying. Not, I don't know. I think I've even watched movies where they said something about judgment in the house of God. I'm not exactly sure how people interpreted this, but the context is very clear. That in a sense, if God permits believers to go through this, His children in this world. Yes, it shows the integrity of our faith. Yes, it proves that we are who we say we are. But it's not exactly a good thing. There's a reason there's no suffering or persecution in heaven. It's not a good thing. Yes, God can use it to bring about good. It doesn't mean that it's a good thing in itself. But if believers will go through all of that on account of their faith here on this earth, that's what his point, that if this is our lot here on earth, how much more those that do not, obey the gospel. What then would befall them? That's just the message he's passing across. He says if the righteous one is scarcely saved, or some translations say he's saved with much difficulty, meaning he's saved through persecution. Again, Jesus, in this world, you will face persecution. Paul speaking, anyone who wants to live a righteous life or a godly life on this earth will go through persecution. For some, it's maybe just social or online or verbal for others it's much much worse the point is if you choose to stand for God in a world that does not hate God expect pushback that's the message and he's saying if that is the case for we who have received the gospel the point there is how much more worse for those who go through this entire life without receiving what then would befall them in the world to come that's all he's trying to say it's still the same idea still the same idea and then he goes on in verse 19 so what is what what then should be our our our, our mindset in the face of this he says therefore with all i've said about the glory of christ resting on you with all i've said about it being necessary and and even much worse fate for those who don't say yes to the gospel what then is the conclusion of the whole matter let those who suffer according to the will of god that's that's amazing. Meaning, yes, he might not be the one that sent suffering your way. But it is, in quotes, permitted for that time. And that's why Jesus would tell Peter, he would say, oh, um, you would eventually follow me. But not now. He would tell the disciples this and this would happen. The Holy Spirit would, he says, the Holy Spirit showed me the things that would happen in Jerusalem. But Paul still went head on after Agabus said, they will bind you, this and this, but it was the will of God to go to Jerusalem. So even if following God will require or will bring you face to face with the evil of men or with, with, the, with, 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 with persecution, right? It says, let those who, who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good, as to a faithful Creator, and it's that same mindset we've gone through time and time again. What is the Christian's perspective to persecution? Number one, trust in the wisdom of God. Number two, glory in the fact that you identify with Christ. Perhaps no more at no much more at any point in time than at that particular point of suffering and persecution. And number three, rejoice in the hope. Eternity, I'll say that again number one, trust in his wisdom, number two, glory in identification, and number three, rejoice in eternity. Hi, Ernest, welcome. My other okay, now, (laughs) my welcome, thanks for joining. Um, So, chapter 5, verse 1. Let's start to bring this book to a close. It says, the elders who are amongst you. So now he has talked about what does it look like to stand as God's holy people? What does it look like to be God's chosen generation, to show forth his praises? He has, he has pretty much gone through all of that. The emphasis being attitude in the face of suffering. Now he starts to bring the entire book to a close. He says, the elders who are among you, I exhort. It says, I am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a particle of glory that will be revealed. Let's let's look at each of that. So first of all, he's talking to elders. The, the literal word actually means someone who is old in age. And of course, in the early church, and perhaps today most times, right, the spiritual leaders were those who were older because they've probably been in the faith much longer. But it's not, not a necessity that until you are 50 plus, You know, some churches until you're 50 plus, you cannot be an elder. An elder simply meant a spiritual leader, someone who had oversight of the people. Right? The local churches were headed by groups of elders. But we see Timothy, who Paul would even say, Let no one despise your youth. So it's not necessarily an age thing, even though most of the elders, of course, will be older, but it doesn't mean that you have to be old to be an elder. I believe that makes sense, right? But that's the idea. It says that I exhort, I am a fellow elder. And this, this, uh, this, I think any um, one who argues that Peter was somehow so, for instance, in in like the Catholic tradition and the idea of Peter being like a lineage that is the head of the church and all of that and the, the papacy, right, or the papacy, I don't know how it's pronounced. But see how Peter talks to the elders. He didn't say I command, being the chief elder, <laughs> being the one who God said on this rock I will build my. I'm a fellow elder, I'm just like you, I'm just like you, right? I I, I think that's something that people should think about when they argue that Peter saw himself as that, it's not exactly true. He says, I'm a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Of course, he was alive. The same way John would say, that which our eyes have seen, our hands have handled concerning the word of life. And he says, I'm also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, just like every believer. So he's identifying with the audience he's about to address. He says, I'm one of you. And what is the instruction for anyone listening who will eventually be an elder? (laughs) Which is pretty much, I believe, most people on this. Anyways, it says, Shepherd the flock of God. Shepherd the flock of God. And I I read this and I remember preparing yesterday night and my heart was just warm. Why? The word there in the KJV is feed the flock of God or feed God's sheep. If you remember Peter's restoration, so of course we know the story of Peter, hard guy, hard guy, I would never deny you. Raw. they said, are you one of them? He said, I don't know him. What are you saying? And three times he denied Jesus. And then Jesus comes back in John 21 and three times asks him, do you love me? So much to that Peter was broke with that. Huh? Now we mess up. <laughs> and what does Jesus tell him in John 21 verse 15? He says, so when they are eating breakfast, Jesus asked to Simon Peter, Simon son of Jonah, do you love me more than this? He says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And what does he say? Feed my lambs. Feed my lambs. It's the same thing. It's amazing. That's the same words. That those are the same words that Peter then turns around to speaks to to speak to the elders. He's writing to that if you are an elder, feed God's lambs. Feed God's lambs. The word there is to have oversight, to look diligently. Right, it says you are serving as overseers, not by compulsion but willingly, not for dishonest gain. I believe that's pretty clear. It is not as being lords over those entrusted, but as being examples. And that's the same pattern of Christian service we see in the life of Jesus down. It says that he he that would rule, it says that he must serve. He must serve. It's not a, we're not in a kingdom where the people that God has placed lord it over us. No, they are examples to follow. So you'd see Paul saying, imitate me as I imitate Christ examples to follow. So he's telling them, shepherd the flock of God, be an example. And in verse 4, when the chief shepherd, when the chief shepherd, of course, Jesus, right? The R.K. The head pastor, the lead pastor of the church of Christ, Jesus Christ. That's not his son, but forgive me. Right, Our lead pastor, Jesus Christ. <laughs> when he appears, it says, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade. We're talking about specifically reward for Christian leadership and service. And that's the encouragement. It is likewise you younger people. So you see that idea that the elders were most, more often than not, the, the they were actually elder in age and in spiritual responsibility. But like I said, it's not it's not necessarily mandatory there are people who get saved at 80 you don't just make them elders because they've been you you are now saved come and be an elder in our church that's not how it works right it's more about maturity and spiritual maturity than physical but it kind of makes sense that people who have been longer I mean the next 50 years many of us have been saved for 50 plus years it makes sense that we are elders both physically and spiritually so that's the idea so it says likewise you younger people Submit yourself to your elders, right? Your spiritual leaders. It says, yes, all of you be submissive to one another. And I love, I love this. It's the same idea when people um, have issues with the whole marital union. We see this in Ephesians 5. What does Paul say? Submit yourselves one to another. Yes, masters, sorry, servants are submitted to masters, and um, wives are submitted to husbands and children, submitted to parents. But yet, it says all of you submit to one another. So even those who lead you, there is still an attitude of humility and service. So it's not that, oh, you're submitting to me so I can lord it over. No, every believer, every believer submits to every other believer, right? Regardless of, 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 um, the word is not hierarchy, but responsibility, right? There is a sense of leadership but it is seen in service. And so it makes sense that those you are serving also submit to your service, (laughs) right? So all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We talked about this in James, that the very nature of God makes him naturally opposed to the proud person. How does pride look like? I don't need you or I'm better than you I can do it by myself and if the very nature of salvation is to say I can't save myself a proud person can be saved if the very nature of Christian lifestyle is I can't do the things that God wants me to do without his help a proud person can't live effectively as a Christian God has so designed our work with him that every step Every progressive step in our walk with God requires humility to know that without him, we can do nothing. God says, oh, start a work. Without him, you can do nothing. God says, do this. God says, serve where you've been planted. God says, do whatever. Walk, live above sin. You require or you need. Right, the grace of God to do so. And so it makes sense that a proud heart can never walk in the will of God. Because by by virtue of your character, you are standing in opposition to all that God wants to do through you. Another way to think about it is like the wind is blowing in a certain direction and you decide to run the other way. You are the one in air. God is not going to do He's not going to change His nature because you are somehow proud. So it says, God resists the proud, gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. So yes, we submit to one another, but even in our experiences, whether whether in this world, right, in, in the time of suffering, in the face of persecution, humble yourself under the might, mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, whether it's in this world or in the world to come. It says, casting all your cares upon him For he cares for you. Peter is reflecting on Psalms 55, verse 22. Psalm 55, verse 22. It says, Cast your burden on the Lord, and he shall sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. And I like the way it says, casting your care. The idea of a care as a weight, as a burden, as a distraction, actually. Right? The the, the literal Greek word there, it's translated worries, distractions, things that take. Things that take up your mind. It says the cares of this world, right? It says cast it all on him. Cast it all on him. You're finding it hard to live in the face of suffering. And cast it on him. You're finding hard to stand for God in a godless world. Cast it on him. Right? It says for he cares for you. For he cares for you. And a lot of these things I'm saying are not exactly the most theologically sophisticated, like I'm not doing any, Oh, well, let's look at what it says in the Greek. Let's. But again, like I've always said, when we get to experiential portions of scripture like this, I beg you to spend time meditating. Spend time meditating on this. Many times, a lot of reasons why believers have issues in their day-to-day Christian work is because for some, many of them have learned or have gotten very comfortable with the theological oh this is what God has done in Christ I am saved I'm sanctified, righteous I am who he says I am I have what he says I have I can do all that he says I can do glory but when it comes to the implications on your day-to-day walk you haven't probably spent time meditating you haven't spent time reflecting on what it means to be a believer today and if that's the case it makes sense why it's probably be hard to live on a day-to-day basis in spite of what you know. So when you get to portions, like don't just read it and say, ah, I understand everything yeah. I said. Let's just read on. Let's move to Romans. Let's go and let's see what Paul has to know. Spend time and meditate. Meditate. Think over. Cast your cares upon him for he cares for you. For He cares. It's because he cares for me that I can cast my cares upon him. The same idea of as a child, all I knew about my life was that when I'm hungry, there's food to eat. All I have to do is read my books and then I watch TV and go to sleep. I'm not thinking about bills. I'm not thinking about (laughs) meetings. I'm not thinking about anything, right? Because I cast my cares on my parents because they cared for me. It's the same idea. The believer, in spite of all he's encumbered or she's encumbered with in this life, is supposed to go through it without worry, without fear, without anxiety. Why? Because he or she is to live perpetually under the idea of a loving father. And that should have a practical implication on the way you live your life on a day-to-day basis. Amen. It goes on again, verse 8, as we start to round up. Probably our shortest teaching in a while. I'm very happy about that. It says, be sober, be vigilant it's the same words we've seen right in chapter 4 verse 7 Peter uses similar phrases it says be serious be watchful in your prayers in chapter 1 verse 13 he used that says gird up the loin of your mind and be sober if an apostle thinks it's important to write something three times in the same letter I tell you it is important not only that it is because it's probably one of the easiest things to forget or one of the easiest things to not do be sober be vigilant i think almost every week we've talked about this because it's come up so many times be sober the idea of not being drunk and what is the idea of drunkenness like the way wine intoxicates and you're not able to think clearly You're not able to make rational decisions. You're not able to analyze. It's the same idea. Be sober. The world will drunken you. That's all Peter has been saying. That's it. Gird up the loins of your mind. Be vigilant. Or the same word, be watchful. Be watchful. Be watchful. We live in a world that it's so easy, so easy. Whether it's through suffering or whether it's through pleasure, whichever one, it's so easy to lose sight of what matters. And for that reason, if Peter can repeat it three times in the same letter, I think we should be repeating it every time we pray. That God help me to live my life with a focus on what matters most. Because it's so easy. Career can easily come and drunken you, right? Pleasure can, money, wealth can easily drunk in a man. Poverty can easily drunk in a person. Business, education, even marriage, right, can easily drunk in a person. But the idea there is the believer is sober. At every point in time, he's able to think clearly about what matters most. He's able to properly evaluate life and know what is truly important and what is temporal. It's still important, but not as important as what will be eternal. And that's the idea. Be sober, be vigilant. Why? It says, because your adversary, the devil, (laughs) walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And again, you see the idea, another description. In one place, we see him being described as an angel of light. A seducing spirit that will probably try to lure through pleasure or whatnot. Now, the idea is that he is a roaring lion. So he's not even, he's not hiding. He's coming to destroy, right? And he says, resist him steadfast in the faith. Your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion. So what should you do as a result? First of all, be sober, be vigilant, be aware. Because if... You lose God. (laughs) Anything can happen. (laughs) That's the first thing. But the second is, he says, resist him. How do we resist the devil? By being steadfast in the faith. It's the same thing we talked about in Ephesians 6, where Paul starts to talk about the armor of God. And he says, having done all to stand, stand. We stand by standing. (laughs) We resist the devil, by being steadfast in the faith. So, we re, AKA, we resist the devil through a consistent Christian walk. We resist the devil or it's by, by having a view of eternity that is not distracted by whatever life throws at us. We resist the devil by standing firm in our identity in Christ, in the face of anything we go through. Remember, these are people going through persecution. So it's one of the things that could take their hearts away. We looked at that all. That was the whole book of Hebrews, right? How to stand in the faith in the face of Christian persecution. And it's the same thing. For some of us, it might not even be persecution, right? Whatever the devil throws, how do we resist him? Through steadfastness in the faith. Fellowship with the brethren. Prayer, study, devotion. That's it. That is our spiritual warfare. That is our spiritual warfare. Don't isolate yourself. Ensure that at every point in time you have a clear view of what matters most to you. Stay faithful in the word. Stay faithful in prayer. That is your spiritual warfare. That is how you stand or you resist the devil. What else does he say in verse 9? Knowing that. And I've said it that anywhere you see knowing that in your Bible, you should probably highlight it. Because at the end of the day, our Christian response is strongly tied to our knowledge. So, Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 or 6 will say, Don't you know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost? If you knew, you would not be sexually immoral. In chapter 3, he tells them, Don't you know that you are the temples of God? When they were dividing over Oh I'm Camp Paul? I am for Peter's evangelical ministry. I am Barnabas' mission global. He says, don't you know that you are the temple of God? God dwells in you collectively. Why are you splitting over people? Right? In Romans Romans 6, I believe, he says that, how can you who are dead to sin live any? Don't you know that you have been made dead to sin? He says, reckon yourselves. So our knowledge is directly tied, directly tied. In James it says, knowing that the trials of thought are nothing to be compared to the glories that should follow. Your knowledge is so important. Once again, he's talking to people who are going through persecution. How is the devil roaring like, walking about like a around life for these guys? It is through persecution. And what are they to know? It says the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood all over the world. This it is not just you. Everyone. It's collective, not the same experience. we breakfast. So <laughs> every single one of us. So he said, don't worry, right? That's the same thing Paul actually said in First Corinthians 10, verse 13. It says, no temptation has overtaken you except such that is common to man, right? So he wants said that when you're going through suffering and persecution, when you're going through temptation, stand firm in the faith and also bear it in mind that everyone, oh, I'm struggling to pray, everyone. Ah, I'm struggling to pray, but everyone. Ah, it's so hard to evangelize, everyone. Ah, suffering and persecution, it's hard to stand for God in my workplace, everyone. (laughs) Everyone. Everyone. So he's saying that as a form of motivation, as a guardrail in your mind to make it easier to resist the devil. And that's another reason why community is so important. In community, we are able to share our struggles, and then you be like, Ah, so it's not just me. Even this guy, he's going through stuff. It makes it easier, to, and we are able to help each other and strengthen one another to keep on being steadfast in the faith. And that's why Hebrews will tell them, Don't forsake the gathering of the brethren. Your, your isolation is one of the first things the devil will try to do to make it easy to affect the mind of a believer. Because once you start getting isolated, once you are blocked from other people's experiences, you start to think it's just you. Ah, God, why me? And then you start to get more and more discouraged. It gets harder to be steadfast, of course, because you think it's somehow the universe is against you. You're not praying as you used to. You're not studying as you used to. No one knows, and it just gets worse. And then the devil has a field day. So pay attention to that community so important the sufferings you're experiencing it says your brotherhood all over the world everyone everyone it says but may the god of grace who called us to his eternal glory by christ jesus after you have suffered a while i can't overemphasize i'm, I'm not even going to i'll just you already know what peter is so anyways after you've suffered a while me perfect established strengthened and settle you. It says to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. It says by Silvanus, our faithful brother, again, like I've said time and time again, I think that is the greatest praise a minister of the gospel can get. Faithful. When Jesus comes and when he talked in Matthew and he says that, he says, Well done, thou good and successful servant oh well done that good and prosperous servant well done that good and i don't know (laughs) it says that good and faithful did you do what god asked you to do that is that is honestly all that ministry requires faithfulness faithfulness all that god says i have done it well done thou good and faithful servant so he says, Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I've written to you briefly, exhorting. Yeah, actually, this one is brief. Unlike Hebrews that said, I've written to you in a few words. And it took us four months or so to get through the entire book of Hebrews. And those are a few words as well. This I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace in which you stand. So he's explaining the grace. He's pretty much saying that all I've done, I'm I'm exhorting and testifying that this is the true Christian life. This is Christianity. All I've talked about, like Peter says, the hope that is to come. Submission to authority, submission to one another, standing firm in the face of suffering, serving one another, loving one another, leaders serving the body, being humble, right, standing firm against the devil. This is is the true grace. This is Christianity. This is Christianity. And he goes on it says she who is in Babylon. A lot of theologians will say, oh, um, but some, will, some will say Peter is referring to a person. Some will say Peter is referring to his wife. <laughs> all sorts of theories. Some will say Babylon is figurative for Rome. Some will say Babylon is an actual like some part of Assyria where Peter probably was. Number one, fortunately, it doesn't really matter. It has little to do with all you've gotten from the book. So don't split hairs. Say, ah, you believe it's wife? Huh? It's possible, right? (laughs) If Peter was in Babylon, then he can just be saying, my wife who is with me is pretty. I don't think that's it. I don't really. So it's not Babylon, Old Testament Babylon. It's, I mean, the Babylonian Empire had already been long taken over by that time, but some part of Assyria. But anyways, I'm not gonna even spend time on this. I, I think it's an actual place. And she's talking about the church where he's writing from. I don't know which one. Is it Rome? Is it some Babylon place? I don't know. It doesn't really matter. Like I said, these are things that people argue about. I lean more towards some part of Assyria where he probably was and where there were a lot of Jews. So he's talking about the church there. But again, it doesn't really matter. There's hardly any way to know. It says, elect together with you. They are saved. Your brothers and sisters, they greet you. It says, and so does Mark, my son. Again, some people say it's his biological son. Some will say it's his disciple. I lean more towards Mark, his disciple, the same Mark that wrote the book of Mark, right? So the same way Paul had Timothy, Peter had Mark. um, And it says, Mark greets you as well. It says, greet one another with a kiss of love. (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> so of course, and this is why I remember I, I taught um, a few years ago on how to read the Bible or the role of the Holy Spirit in biblical interpretation. That sermon got me in trouble. <laughs> the the chaplain of the school asks to see me <laughs> after that teaching. Ah, um, but it is well. It is clear that there is cultural context in the bible the very fact that you don't read first peter 5 14 and go around kissing your brothers and sisters in christ proves that when you read there is a place to study the cultural context so it is not foreign to the bible if you do it in verse 14 you might as well do it with the whole letter amen so he's simply saying greet one another passionately <laughs> love one another and greet one another right so a lot of times people argue ah, don't use your mind to understand the Bible just let the Holy Spirit minister to you ah. that's an evil spirit though. at the end of the day still what your mind is telling you there's no Holy Spirit because you look at the doctrines that come out of such views of Bible interpretation and you're like this cannot be the spirit of God it is your mind the same mind you are saying we should not use you shall use this to teach nonsense so <laughs> um, no right? There is a place in which intel, um, intellect, there's a role that intellect plays in the study of the Bible. I mean, what literally studying grammar, when we talk about context, context is simply an application of grammar created by men. So, um, don't, don't, uh, don't, there is a huge role that the Spirit of God plays, but it's not as many people think, where they just say, ah, God, as I studied today, minister to me through your word. And what they have in mind is not exactly what the Spirit of God does. Maybe I'll do a bonus track to teach on that as well. Um, but, yes. So, that brings us to the end of the book of First Peter. Woo! We finished yet another book. And um, that is the summary, right? Peter is simply writing to the Christians, scattered to, like he said, exhort and testify of true salvation. And so when you read the entire book, let that be in your mind. All Peter is describing is who a Christian is in the world he finds himself today. The Christian is the one who looks to the hope, whom having not seen, he or she loves. And he believes and rejoices in the hope that is to come. And because of that hope, he lives holy or she lives holy in this world, she or he submits to authority, submits to one another, loves the brotherhood, serves the the people he has or she has been located in, stands in the face of persecution, resists the devil, and yeah, loves, greets people with kisses of love. That is the Christian. That is who you are. That is who I am. And a lot of things I've said here are fairly obvious. It's not hard to understand. But like I said, what will be your biggest takeaway from practical books like this, kind of like James, right, is to spend time reflecting, spend time praying your friends and your Christian community, hold each other accountable to these standards, so when you see a brother or a sister not being home, you say, Ah, remember the true grace that we have received that Peter spoke about. When you see your brother or sister not submitting, you say, Remember who the Christian is. When you see your brother or sister weak in the faith, strengthen them. Come alongside them and remind them that last last. So stand up, stand up. Don't worry, don't worry. Let's keep going. There is a hope that is to come. Amen. All right. On that note, do we have any questions? This is shortest teaching in a while. I'm happy about that. Uh, do we have any questions? Any questions? All right. No questions. So next week we're going to be looking at Second Peter. Very much shorter. Just three chapters similar themes but a slightly different emphasis i actually like the book of second peter a lot um we're going to be looking at that over the next couple weeks in december we're going to pause sometime in december probably after second peter we're going to do second and third john at once and then we'll probably call it a break for the year it's amazing to think we've started since january and week after week we've come long way, and I'm grateful to God. And then we'll pick it up sometime in January, probably going back to Paul. I've missed Paul, um, and I want to um, shake your your theological minds a bit. So we'll probably look at maybe Corinthians or Philippians or Thessalonians, whatever. Um, I ended up I end up deciding before that time. We'll most likely run all through next year as well. I did not anticipate we're going to last this long, but it is well. Miriam you have a question Hi Yeah God allows evil to Yeah, okay Hmm. okay um i remember i've spoken at length on this uh i can't remember which one now where i talked about where i emphasized paul stone in the flesh and all of that if anyone remembers what book we're studying where i emphasised that I know i talked about it at james but i talked about it before james as well maybe it was even before whatever book we did before hebrews probably but i can't remember but yes um i think a clear view and it's called theodicy meaning your theology on suffering right fancy words theologians have fancy words for everything um but like i've taught consistently since hebrews till now it is clear right? That God allows evil. It is. I think it's pretty clear. If you deny that, then Jesus could not have died for your sins. Because what exactly happened when Jesus, in when he says, God, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. What does that giving look like? He handed him over to evil. Literally, right? Do you see, Justin, if it is possible, let this cup pass over me and it says nevertheless not my will but yours be done what was the will of God in that moment it was for Jesus to die was it God that took knife and <laughs> stabbed him no god simply gave him to the evil in the hearts of men and that's why you would see Paul and Paul saying to Corinth that um the devil the princes of this world they thought they were wise it says, that had they known they would not have crucified um the, the king of glory so God gave Jesus over or Jesus himself, and Jesus also said that I lay my life down. He chose to submit to the evil of this world. And in evil. So the balance is that God does not bring evil. He is not evil. However, in his wisdom, he is able to use evil to bring about greater good. For instance, the salvation of mankind. God uses evil to bring about good. Another thing to bear in mind, it doesn't mean every evil thing that happens was necessarily, oh, um, that nothing could have been done. Because a lot of times when you hear the word God permitted, people have used it to either mean that there's nothing they could have done about it, so why pray God permitted it? That's terrible theology. Another time, people forget that it is, they are more active participants. So the idea, for instance, is that if, you, if you're a drunkard, for instance, and you get sick, you, your liver gets destroyed and you die at 40, that's not... It's silly to say, Ah God permitted the sickness to come upon me. That's not what we're talking about. Even, for instance, I'm not even saying... I'm not talking about sickness now. Let's not even go there. That's a whole different um, teaching entirely. But clearly, when it comes to the persecution of believers... When it comes to the design of this world, we can clearly see. In fact, I think I talked about when Paul prayed. He literally prayed three times that God take this thorn in the flesh away. And what was God's response? It wasn't to take the evil away. It was to give Paul the strength to go through it. And I, I think you listen to James 1. I I've, Yeah, I did spend a lot of time in James as well talking about this that sometimes God's answer to our prayers in the face of persecution is the strength to endure and we're expected to go through that coming out with wisdom so yes God does step in to stop human or to stop evil in the world we see that in the case of Peter right for James James was killed Peter was delivered right Uh, other times his answer is not to take out the evil at that point in time, but to give the believer the strength and the wisdom to go through it. The third thing is that as believers, based on all I've said, so you might listen, you might want to listen to even today and last week as well, what does Peter remind us? That there is coming a time when God will indeed finally deal with all the evil in this world. Until that time, we see glimpses of evil. We still see evil, not glimpses. I mean, you look at it, it's more than a glimpse. You still see evil, right? Again, it's the same apologetic question that if God is so good, why does He allow evil in the world? Why are people being raped? Why is there trafficking? Why is, why are there killings? Why was where was God during the Holocaust? It's that same question. It's not it's it's something that bothers some sincerely. For some, it's just lazy trying to poke holes in in the christian faith that if god was somehow good he should have actively gotten involved in every demonstration of human evil and the question or the answer is simply that cannot happen because if that's the case then there will be no free will that's number one number two we do see places where god has stepped in to deal with evil and it's those same places some other Critics will say, why did God? So we see evil in the world, and God dealt with it. They say, why did God do this? But you see evil in the world, God didn't deal with it. You say, why didn't God do it? So the the truth is that it's more than just finding answers. For some, it's just poking holes. But um, like I said earlier, um, there's coming a time where God will deal with evil. If God was to stop every form of evil right now, we will have no free will. So even the thought to do evil, God will hold that thought captive. Bringing it to obedience to Christ, <laughs> changing everything. Right? As someone wants to shoot, the gun will not shoot. There will be literally no free will at this point. So there is the there is the there is the sense in which in the world God created, He allowed the design of this world. I mean, God literally. Adam fell. <laughs> Adam fell. All right? And it's in the free will of man that that was permitted as well. So. I don't want you to take that thinking that any bad thing that happens, that somehow, oh, God, it is the will of God. There's a difference, right? Don't don't be that lazy Christian. Say, ah, my mom died of cancer last week. It is the Lord give it and the Lord take it away. That, those are two different theologies. There's a difference between God in his wisdom allowing evil to, to go on for a while because he's eventually going to judge it and saying that God... It is the will of God for bad things to happen until so there's nothing you can do about it. Those are two different things. But yes, there is a sense in which God permits believers to go through persecution. I think that's very clear in Paul, in Hebrews, in James, in Peter. Right? It's very clear. Does that help? Again, I can't say so much about this because I have talked a lot about this in pretty much every episode we've talked about for a while now so does that help or do you still have any follow-up questions totally fine if you do all right no problem any other questions i think you're lagging a bit i didn't hear you you could type it in the chat but yeah any other questions all right so let's pray call it a day and i'll see you guys next week oh nesic is reboot camp now (laughs) i'll send you recording (laughs) all right so yes please you could always ask me let's pray our father and our god thank you for today thank you for your word thank you for yet another book Thank you for all that Peter teaches us about what it means to live as a believer in today's world. I pray that we're able to appreciate, reflect, and receive all that this book has to offer. That our lives are marked with a sense of humility. That our lives are marked with a sense of consecration. That we remain ever sober, ever watchful. In this world we find ourselves, that we shine bright in in a world that isn't necessarily submitted to your will. And through us, the gospel is made known to our friends, our communities, our families, and the world at large. Thank you, God, for your wisdom. Help us to trust in it better, even especially in times we don't understand. In Jesus' name we pray.